I wonder, have you ever thought or felt that your life was made for more? More than just muddling through each day, trying to do your best to make something of yourself in our crazy, mixed-up world. Well, if that's the case, then let me let you into a secret. That feeling or that desire within you has been planted inside you by Almighty God, the God who made you in his own image and likeness, the God who has a plan for you to be adopted into his kingdom family, to live as a steward of his earth for his glory as you walk with him through all of the challenges and all of the adventures of life ahead. That's what God wants for you. Does that sound appealing to you? Well, if so, you can read about those things in the Old Testament book of Genesis in chapter 2, the book that tells us all about beginnings. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, we read that God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart, in your heart, and in mine. That's something amazing. And so if that's all true, then it means that your life and mine from Monday to Sunday, that our lives are not just here by accident. You have been made for significance, and God wants you to know this for a night, that the greatest thing that you can do with your life is to worship him with all that you are and all that you have. Because whenever you do that, then your heart just melts as you marvel at his amazing gift of mercy. And whenever you know about his mercy, and whenever you experience that mercy all day, every day, you'll just want to glorify and enjoy him forever as you offer yourself every day in service of him with love. But what's mercy, you might ask? Well, it's a biblical word that describes how God loves us so much that he desires not to treat us as our sins deserve. And he has put in place a rescue plan that millions of people worldwide have been celebrating in the Christian festival called Easter that we've all been part of during the past few days. The passage that we're looking at tonight is from an ancient letter that was written by a guy called Paul, who'd had his life transformed from the inside out for good because he'd begun a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the first person to have ever died and risen again, proving that he was the Messiah who was written about hundreds of years before in a collection of sacred writings that are called the Old Testament. And his name says everything about him. Before he was born, you know the story, how an angel came and told his parents that he was to be called Jesus. Why? Because he was going to save his people from their sins. Now, you might say, well, what's the importance of that for me in 2023? Surely that happened a long, long time ago. Well, Paul actually answers that question in this letter. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later on in chapter 6 and verse 23, we get the scary news that the wages of that sin is death. And whenever we read about it, it's not just physical death that we no longer live our lives in the body, 
but it's also, and perhaps far more seriously, spiritual death and separation from God, not just for time, but for all eternity. That's very serious stuff. And if all of that was, if that was all that Paul had to say in this letter, then we know that we'd all be doomed to an eternity without God and without hope. But it's just lovely for me, and this is the joy of being a preacher, is that you can stand before people, and yes, you tell them about sin and about the mess in their lives, but you tell them that God's Word has hope and good news in it. Because both of those verses end with great news for people who hear the bad news about sin, who turn to Jesus for salvation. In Romans 3 and verse 23, it ends by saying that all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And again, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it confirms all that by saying that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's what we have been celebrating at Easter, this amazing gift of eternal life, of freedom, of redemption from sin. And so chapters 1 to 11 of this letter introduce us to big Bible words that speak of God's mercies towards us and that we are justified freely by faith in Jesus. What's that about? Well, justified is a legal term. It means that God, who is the judge, sets us free from the judgment that we deserve for our, our sinfulness. Why? Because Jesus has taken it from us. He has borne the wrath of God for us so that we are justified freely by faith in Jesus. And we also read in Romans that we are sanctified, a word that means that God is doing a holy makeover in our lives. That can be scary, but it's also wonderful to think that God wants to change you. But how does He want to change you? Well, He wants to work in you all day, every day, to make you think and act and become more like Jesus, His Son. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing to think that God has that plan for your life and mine? And you know, one of the best words that we read in the Bible in this letter to the Romans is righteousness. Now, I know that you know your own heart, and so I don't have to tell you about the heavy burdens that you carry of guilt and shame and dissatisfaction that annoy your head so much, especially in that wee thinky time. I don't know about you, but for me, whenever you go to bed and you turn the light out, all the stuff that's happened in the day, and especially all the bad stuff, all comes to your mind. And so in that thinky time, all of the mess in your life comes to your mind. And you feel trapped because you know that you can't stop yourself from thinking and speaking and acting in ways that are selfish and wicked and shameful and destructive. You tell lies, you're full of pride, and you have an awful fear of dying because you just know that if there is a God, well, He has it in for you. He has it in for you for living a life that is just a rebellious mess in so many ways. You know that, and so you feel pathetic. The young ones would say, you feel crap, don't you? You just feel crap about it. But hear this tonight. Paul tells us in this letter that God is a God of mercy. And so if you turn from the sin that you hate, 
and put your trust in his son, Jesus, God promises that he will wipe the slate of your life clean. And he'll give you a righteousness that you don't deserve and you can never earn. Well, the result that when God looks at you, he now sees you as holy, acceptable, perfect in his sight, just like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Listen, I know that some of you tonight, that you feel guilty and you're so burdened in your own heart and you don't feel worthy. Well, you're not worthy. But Jesus considered it worthwhile to die and rise again for you so that you might receive righteousness from him, that you might know that he loves you, that he might make you acceptable in God's sight. And how does it all work? Well, the Easter story tells us so, the story of the cross. We read in the Scriptures that the blood, the blood that Jesus shed for you on a Roman cross in that place called Calvary, which is outside a city in Jerusalem in Israel, a few thousand miles away from here. Jesus died on that cross over 2,000 years ago. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, we hear this amazing truth that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. Hallelujah. So you don't need to carry that burden anymore because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin, past, present, and future. And so, friends, these are some of the amazing things that Paul's been teaching in chapters 1 to 11 of his letter. But now... In chapters 12 to 16, he talks about the application of the theology in the life of every believer like you and like me. And it's all pretty dramatic because Paul tells us that God's plan is that each one of us is called to engage in spiritual warfare and, and that we're supernaturally equipped to play an active part in God's dream team, the church. To do what? Well, to establish the kingdom of God on this earth here in Banger onto the far corners of this earth. <laughs> but you set yourself up, but come on, look, how, how can that happen? You ask that as you look into your own heart and you see how easily distracted you are by all the stuff that's on your phone and on TV and in all of the busyness at school and at college and at work. And then you look around even here at all the people in church. We're all so different in church. And so, how can this work? How can we all become active members of God's dream team to change this world for Him? Well, again, we thank God that the answer to that question is in the Scriptures here, and it's clear that it's not something we can do. It's a God thing. You can only do it His way. And it's important to note that Paul wrote this letter to a very divided church in the city of Rome. And let's remember that the city of Rome was the headquarters of the very mighty and very pagan Roman Empire. And the church was tiny at that time, a very small percentage of the population. And yet still the plan of God was that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And here we are thousands of years later, and it's happened. But in this church of Rome, some members were proud and bigoted Jews who had grown up believing that obedience to God's law was the only way to please God. And so they were legalistic. And they were proud and snooty. 
And they looked down at others who were Gentiles, who knew nothing about their law. And so there was a conflict in the church. And yet all of these followers of Jesus needed to learn how to live their lives in response to the amazing mercies of God. To fulfill the two greatest imperatives that we read in the New Testament that Jesus himself gives, where we're to love the Lord our God with heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, and also to obey the Great Commission to go into all the world and to proclaim Christ to all nations. Now look, I've deliberately taken quite a long time at the start here to spell out just a little about how amazing God, God's mercies are tonight. Very deliberately. Why? Because unless your heart has been stirred by the glory story that we read in the Bible, unless you feel humbled by the fact that God should act in love to rescue sinful and undeserving people like you from the awful place that Jesus calls hell, then the honest truth is that the rest of this letter has absolutely no relevance to you. It'll have no relevance to you. You won't be able to get it. You'll be incapable of living a life that is fulfilling and fruitful in God's dream team called the church. Why? Because the honest truth is that you lack the humility to accept that apart from the mercies of God and Christ, you are utterly helpless and hopeless. And your short life on this planet will be tragically lacking, lacking the supernatural peace and joy and purpose that God has for you. And it will be lacking because you're not clued in to how incredibly powerful the mercies of God are for you. I've prayed that those words won't describe you tonight. But if they do describe you, just ask God right now, to open your blind eyes, to soften your hard heart, to change you so that you may understand what the mercies of God mean for you. But you know, I'm always so thrilled whenever I'm able to stand here before you because you're the people who have prayed for us through all the years of ministry so that we could stand, so that we could keep on. You're the people who did that. And so, I can't thank you enough, but also, you're the people, many of you are people that I know, I know that as I stand here before you tonight, you really get what Jesus has done for you. You revel in the mercies of God. You've devoted your whole lives to worshiping and serving Him because your life is overflowing with God's mercies, and you know it, and you just want to give back to Him. And so, to those of you who are like that, the message from this letter is to keep on Keep on worshiping. Keep on refusing to be distracted and deluded by conforming to the pattern of this age, this crazy world that you know is controlled by Satan, whom Jesus calls the prince of this world. Instead, keep on being transformed by the renewing of your mind from the inside out by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who enables you to apply the living Word of God in your lives. Keep on offering yourselves as living sacrifices to God as you put Jesus first, sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to him. Keep on discovering God's good and pleasing and perfect will for you. As you apply Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, that you learned, that we all learned as children, seek first the kingdom of God above all else. 
and live righteously in Christ. And when you do, you'll delight in the fact that he gives you everything that you can ever need. So those of you who know about the mercies of God in your daily experience, what do you need most tonight? You need to worship. And you need to worship more and more. Try and take time more and more to worship. And so I draw your attention once more to the doxology that comes at the end of all the theology that Paul gives us in chapters 1 to 11. Those verses at the end are so important. Paul's heart just bursts in praise as he pours out all that theology. Using scriptures in Isaiah chapter 40 and in Job chapter 41 as a prayer of adoration, his heart just bursts open as he cries out, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Folks, I hope that you can see that Paul is a worshiper. Those verses spell that out so clearly. He's been caught up in wonder at the mercies of God as he's written about the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ, enabling rebellious Gentiles and equally rebellious Jews to be grafted into a single olive tree. That's what we read about in Romans 11, a symbol of the diverse and yet unified church, the family of God that was promised. Do you remember way back with Abraham in Genesis 12, 12 to 17, the promise that God gave that he was going to be the father of a great nation and that they were going to be a light to the world, to the Gentiles? Brothers and sisters, it's happened, and it's happening. It's continuing to happen. Abraham was the father of faith, and Paul knows that, and he bursts out in praise. And then he begins chapter 12 with a gentle and winsome appeal. And I want you to notice that, because it's really important. Paul could have easily exerted his authority as an apostle and shook his finger at them and been stern with them and told them to do this and that and the other thing. But that's not what he chose to do. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge that because it calls us to stop and think about how we conduct ourselves in relation to people whom we are hoping to try and help to live their lives in a way that will please God. Paul is very winsome in what he does. He doesn't lord it over them. He didn't do that. No, he demonstrated a point that he actually made in his own teaching. If you read Philippians chapter 1 and verses, or Philemon chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9, you'll see that he uses that word appeal, or it could be translated urge or plead. He uses that word instead of the word command. Why? As an expression in his own life and leadership of his love and mercy towards the church. And that introduction sets the tone of this whole chapter. The whole chapter oozes with mercy and oozes with grace and love. And he's urging these people to be more and more like Jesus. And so he calls them brothers and sisters. He's not a heavy-handed and haughty leader who sees himself as a cut above the rest and just says, hear you, Lord. No, no, no. 
He says, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this is teaching for the family. And so it's just lovely. It's lovely to see how he starts. And so he demonstrates the crucial teaching point of this whole chapter, which is that our lives really matter to God and to others. You see, this passage is going to teach us that Christian orthodoxy must express itself in orthopraxis. Isn't it crazy, the words that you learn when you go to seminary? Why do they have to do that? Orthodoxy, what you believe. Orthopraxis, how you live. And so Paul's making the point that theology must be seen to be authentic in a life that oozes the love of Jesus. That our beliefs are only worth anything if we behave as kingdom people. And the only way that we can ever hope to do that is to walk with God humbly every day, to ask for grace to begin each hour of each day with the deliberate desire, Lord, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so Paul teaches by example that before we give ourselves away in mercy and service to others, we must first give ourselves away in worship to God. We must allow him to saturate our lives with supernatural goodness. And so Paul defines the Christian life as being worshipful before anything else. I wonder, is that how you are motivated to live each day of your life? Or do you just get up in the morning and you just say, oh, oh, oh I need to go, you know? And so you get up and you go and you try and you do all the stuff that you do, and yet so much of it is a mess. Why? Because you've never taken the time to turn your heart towards the Lord and to offer your life to him and to invite him by his spirit to come and fill you. If that is your way of going, then rejoice tonight because Jesus is being magnified in the eyes of others as you live as an ambassador for him. People will be moved by the way that you live in such a way that they want to know how they can live such winsome lives and fulsome lives as you do. And whenever that happens, then you can tell them about the mercies of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. But if you don't do that, and the tendency in all of us is that we don't, we just are so busy at the start of the day. If you don't, then sadly, your life is not an expression of a life-transforming relationship with Jesus. And people's understanding of Christianity will be very different, that we're all just a pack of do-gooders like so many other socially active people and charities or that have shops down all of our high streets. But folks, that's not at all what Paul's talking about here. He calls us to establish a lifestyle of presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable to Him. Why? Because nothing short of that will constitute spiritual worship. And unless worship is the breath that we breathe as Christians, our lives will never be able to point lost sinners to the mercies of God in Christ Jesus as their Savior. And so it's crucial to note that the adjective that Paul uses to describe worship in verse 1 is log logiken or logiken in Greek. The same word that we get logic from. It makes sense. 
And so if you want to worship and serve Christianly, you must think logically, being wowed by the mercies of God and wanted to be transformed moment by moment as the Holy Spirit renews your mind and changes your conduct day by day. Well, how can that happen, you might ask? <clears throat> and thank God that his word tells us. In John chapter 4, you remember that great story. Uh, the kids, I remember in Port Stewart, uh, whenever we were teaching about this, uh, they talked about the woman of Samaria. <laughs> it's the woman of Samaria. But you know the way Jesus do, you know, um, uh, how they get things wrong. The woman of Samaria. And Jesus was talking to this woman whose life was a mess. You can read about it in John chapter 4. Maybe your life's a mess tonight. And that story would change your life if you read it and see how Jesus transforms her life. She's in a real mess. And they get to talking about worship. And Jesus says, you know, the worship God, that God requires is worship in spirit and in truth. And in my favorite verse in the whole Bible, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the reason why it's my favorite verse is because that's the verse that, that brought me into the kingdom. That's the verse where Jesus challenged me about life and all its fullness. And in this verse, Jesus tells us why truth is so important. He says, abide in my word and it will show you the truth and the truth will set you free. And a couple of chapters before that, in John chapter 8 and verse 36, Jesus declares that if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Free indeed. And so knowing the amazing possibility of that, as Jesus had set him free from a life of proud bigotry, as we read his testimony in, in Acts chapter 9, and if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do it. It's important to read that this man, Paul, who's writing this letter, is writing out of his own personal experience of transformation. And it's a glorious transformation, and it's out of that, it's out of his experience of the mercies of God that Paul tells the divided church in Rome, and you and me tonight, in this chapter 12 of his letter, that the only way to truly live is in Jesus. Earlier in the letter, in, in, in uh, chapter 6 and verse 13, he issued a call to holiness. He said, don't offer your, any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have brought, been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 19 to 20, he issued the call even more bluntly. He wrote, you're not your own, you know. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so because you were bought with a price, glorify God in your body. How can you do that? The only way you can do it is to acknowledge in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul tells us that believers like you and me, that our bodies are temples of the living God. We have been redeemed to be worshipers. And so, you're not your own. Do you hear that tonight? Because you're not your own and you have been bought with a price, the calling in your life tonight is that you glorify God in your body. We read how that happens in the context of the church. 
We're all commissioned to use the supernatural gifts of grace that are given to every believer by the Holy Spirit to build up the church so that together we can be salt and light for him in this world. Please note the importance and the urgency in this call, because needless to say, if you think about it, if all of us as Christians don't hear this call, then we will not fulfill our part in the church. And so the, the, the church will become weak and ineffective. However, if we are to do what we're called to do, we must seek God's help to overcome one of the biggest stumbling blocks that each of us has to deal with every day, which is the problem or the challenge of being conformed to the pattern of this world. Or as you can see in the margin there in front of you, the margin says the pattern of this age. What's that all about? Well, it's all pretty obvious now, really, isn't it? I don't have to tell you that our society has become more and more and more godless day by day as people have abandoned Christ in the church and Satan has had greater freedom to destroy lives. And so <clears throat> look at what's happened in the past couple of years in relation to abortion, in relation to the whole gender battle, in relation to attacks on womanhood and the family and faith. And so, we need to be equipped for this battle. John Stott, who was one of the greatest Christian leaders, I think, that the church has ever known in modern times, John Stott said something that all of us need to take heed to. He said, you should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Well, the problem for many of us is that today we know that newspapers are not as unbiased as perhaps they should be. And so I would recommend to you that you have the Bible in one hand and that you look at organizations like the Christian Institute. If you've never looked up the Christian Institute online, I would encourage you to do that because they are constantly working and they work in, in, in Parliament in Westminster, uh, constantly looking at what laws are being brought forward and they're given Christian input into how those things should or should not be formed. And so the Christian Institute is a, a body, a Christian body, that will help you to be alert to what's going on in the world. But for sure, we need to be aware so that we can be God's servants in these difficult days, so that we may be able to withstand that temptation to be conformed to the world. I don't need to tell you that Ever since our earliest years, you think about your own life. Since your earliest years, you've been taught the world's way. That you're to live in this dog-eat-dog -dog world with competitiveness as your measuring stick. Isn't that right? And so we were sold a lie that people who compete best at school and in sport and at work are the highest achievers who acquire the best qualifications, the most money, the highest status, and the most prized possessions that make us the envy of the world around us. So that with Frank Sinatra we can say, I did it all, and I stood tall, and I did it my way. Folks, that's the pattern of this world. You'll achieve nothing for the kingdom of God if that's the pattern that you follow. Satan has each one of us so preoccupied by me and mine that we've given little thought or time to Jesus in his kingdom. And so, whenever that happens, then we lack the supernatural, mercy-driven, worship-centered winsomeness that Paul pleads for in Romans chapter 12. 
And so we just need to acknowledge that tonight. And we need to say, Lord, help us. Help us. And that's why Paul refers us to the grace that he has been given in verse 3. Because it's on the basis of that grace. What's grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. On the basis of that grace, this converted Pharisee whose mind and heart were once totally focused on religion and murder, this Paul, this transformed man, now calls people like you and me to reject the world's competitiveness, which is a shaky foundation that causes so much stress and division and conflict in our hearts and lives as each of us tries to build a kingdom for ourselves. Instead, he pleads with us to humbly build our lives on a very different foundation. What's that? It's the measure of faith. Do you see that? What's faith? Faith is a supernatural gift from God that is only found in Jesus Christ. And whenever you find that faith, you're born again from above. And so the qualifications that, the only qualifications that matter in the kingdom of God are the qualifications BA, PhD. Born again. Pride has died. If you've learned nothing else from me tonight, learn that. B.A., Ph.D., born again, pride has died. But we need to keep putting it down all the time. And so thank God for passages of Scripture that tell us the honest truth. In Ephesians, 8, or in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9, we read that familiar verse, it's by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of your works. So that no one may boast. And that's why Paul exhorts us not to be full of ourselves. But to consider ourselves with sober judgment. Knowing as we learned in Romans chapter 8. That without faith, none of us can please God. And so the longing that we must have is, Lord, give me more faith so that I may live my life in a way that pleases you. And so, having established that spiritual foundation based on worship and faith alone, Paul then goes on to spell out what practical living as a member of the church looks like. And it's amazing. Verses 3 to 8 of Romans tell us that mutual respect and ministry or, or, or service are God's means for us to discover true fulfillment and fruitfulness in life and change our world for good in total contrast to our former life of sin as we selfishly competed with others to try to control and discover our own destinies. So Paul tells us in verse 5 that in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all others. So we're not loners anymore. The Christian life is not about being a lone ranger. We're the family of God. We're the body of Christ. We belong to each other. And he tells us that each of us have a different form of equipping from God. But our differences don't make anybody better or worse than anybody else. God has deliberately established things in such a way that no Christian can ever be complete in him or herself. And we should thank God for that because then it teaches us to appreciate our family in the church. 
that we know that we need each other if we want to fulfill our destiny in Christ. And so Paul urges each one of us to exercise our gifts for the sake of all others. And this passage is so exciting because it completely transforms our reasons for living. The work of God's Holy Spirit in us sets us free from the endless and tireless tyranny of worldly living. Whenever you submit to the Lord, you're released from hateful jealousy because you now know that you can find full fulfillment just in being and becoming who you are in Christ. You don't have to look or think about anybody else. It's all about what Jesus is doing in and through you. And you no longer need to constantly look at others and wish that I was like them. It's been one of the saddest things in ministry to constantly see that in people. Terry, you know, I would love to serve the Lord, but I wish that I could do this like so-and-so and that like so-and-so. The Scriptures are saying, don't look at anybody else. Just look inside your heart and see what God has done for you, what He's given you, so that you may use that for other people. And you know, one of the lovely things is that because Jesus has not made us the same, we're not spiritual sausages. We don't look the same. We don't think the same. God has created us that way. And so we can celebrate the unity and diversity that exists within the church, knowing that Jesus has made each one of us very different, each with different spiritual gifts that will complement each other's. So your gift and your gift and your gift and your gift will complement mine. And when we bring them all together, God gets the glory. That's the plan. So together, like the members of an orchestra, we can function together as God's dream team and see his kingdom come. Paul goes on in verses 6 to 8 to mention a few of the supernatural ways in which the Holy Spirit uses every Christian to build up the church. They're are three lists in the New Testament of these charismata, that word that has charis at the very core of it, grace in the New Testament. There's three passages. I encourage you to read them. Romans 12 here, the passage that the, the, the list that we're looking at. Also 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and also Ephesians 4. And it's really important for us to see how very different and yet equally important these gifts are. Prophecy is using our gifts either to foretell or to foretell what God's will is as a result of a revelation that has been recently given to us. So it's the ability to predict something or to proclaim something as part of a revelation that God has given to you. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3, we read that the person who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So we have to ask, is that gift important for the church? Absolutely. Sure it is. We all need upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. But here's a really important caveat. Paul spells out that there's always a danger of human error with regard to prophecy. And so, in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 14, he stresses that believers must weigh up what is being said using the discernment that the Holy Spirit gives because prophecy doesn't have the absolute authority that the Scriptures do. And then he mentions service. Service covers a whole range of things that need to get done in church using your head and your hands and whatever resources that God has given to you. People with this gift, they're just people who have generous and spontaneous hearts. They're the people who say, what can I do? What can I do to help? Thank God for servants. 
And teaching, well, that's the gift of understanding and sharing the Word of God with others. And that's really important because it nourishes and builds up the church, helping them to avoid errors. And what's exhortation or encouragement? Well, it's the gift of encouraging strugglers to keep looking up and to keep on going for Jesus. How important that is. We all need that from time to time. Thank God for the encouragers. And the gift of giving, what's that? Well, it's a unique gift in that while all of us, you know that every single Christian is exhorted to give tithes and offerings for God's work and for people in need. But there are some people who are given this special gift. Like Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, they're moved by the Spirit to make special gifts for the sake of the church. And they're encouraged to give liberally, as we see here. And it's fascinating for me that Paul puts leadership away down the list. He doesn't put leadership first. But leadership's really important. Leadership's crucial in the church to ensure that all is done in an orderly fashion, led by the Word and Spirit for God's glory and for the good of all the members. And so leaders are encouraged to lead with diligence. Hear that, you leaders. Like a shepherd who knows and cares for every single sheep in his or her care. And then there's the gift of showing mercy. It's the last one that we read about. This gift of seeing people who are weak and coming alongside them. People who are on the fringes. People that other people don't see. You see them. And you see them not just as people who are weak, but you see them as people whom Jesus loves. And so you come and you reach out to them with cheerfulness so that they know the love of Jesus and can keep on keeping on. Dear friends, you know that all of these gifts and more are crucial for the church to be healthy and grow. And so tonight, God is calling every single believer to discover and do what he has uniquely equipped you to do. It's not about you trying hard to be a good Christian. It's about you asking him to fill you and teach you and use you for his glory. Not looking over your shoulder and wishing that you were like somebody else. And not shirking your calling to do what only you can do to glorify your Savior here in this church and to the far corners of the earth. Doing all with a profound sense of humility and gratitude why? Because of God's abounding mercies to you in Christ Jesus. Just want to say that if you're struggling with that, and many Christians do, if you're struggling to discover and do what Jesus has uniquely called you to do, I want to encourage you to consider spending a few weeks discovering your shape in Christ. What might that mean? Well, Rick Warren, who is the pastor of Saddleback Church in California, spent several years studying the Scriptures all about this business of mutual ministry and the power of the Spirit in the church. And he produced a course that helps us to examine our shape. Shape stands for S is your spiritual gift or gifts. H is your heart or passion. A is the abilities that God has given you. P is your personality. E is your experiences. All of those things make you the unique person that you are. And whenever you take time to look at the person that you are, that God has made you to be, then you begin to discover how you uniquely can serve God and the church 
and in the world. And so if you'd like to know more about that, send me an email at terrylaverty at gmail.com, all one word, lowercase, or I'll put a sheet of paper out on the, the desk outside. Just go and write that down, and I'll be happy to um, uh, arrange to meet with you and give you some material that hopefully will be able to help you in relation to that. But dear friends, I've said enough, and so uh, as we come to the end of this meditation in the Scripture, it's always important that we stop and just pause for a moment. And so I invite you to do that just now. And if it helps you to close your eyes, just do that. And allow the Holy Spirit now to bring to mind what really matters for you from this meditation of Scripture. Maybe you're just longing for more, and you've discovered that Jesus has so much more for you. Just talk to him about that. Maybe you've never really thought about how God's mercies have been poured out for you. And maybe you're fed up with the rat race of competitiveness and Maybe you long to know the freedom that Jesus can give you. Maybe you long to discover how Jesus has shaped you for significance. Talk to Jesus about that just now.